All right, so hello everyone and welcome back to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed, and this is a really exciting podcast that's been a long time in the making, literally like weeks and weeks of planning. But due to my um, slightly disorganized um, attempts at emailing, we couldn't get to it until now, but here we are. Um, And so I'm really excited to um, say that Joanne MacArthur um, is here on the podcast today and before we get into the actual bulk of what we're going to talk about, just give you a little overview of some of the amazing work that Joe has done. So Joe is an award-winning photographer, author, and sought-after speaker. Um, through her long-term body of work, We Animals, she has been documenting our complex relationship with animals around the globe. Since 1998, her work has taken her to almost 60 countries, and in 2019, she founded We Animals Media. MacArthur's first book, We Animals, was published in 2014 by Lantern Books. Her second book, Captive, was published by Lantern Books in 2017. And something I'm looking forward to hopefully talking about on the podcast is the 2013 documentary, The Ghosts in Our Machine, um, which was directed by Liz Marshall and followed Joanne MacArthur as she went around documenting the plight of abused and exploited animals. Um, And that, interestingly, was one of the first animal rights documentaries that I ever watched, and and it affected me very profoundly. Uh, MacArthur's photography and writing has been in publications such as the National Geographic, the National Geographic Traveller, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Vice, LA Times, Huffington Post. You get the picture. It's been widely broadcasted, widely shown around, widely published due to the incredibly impactful nature of the work. And not only has it been published in many publications, but Joanne MacArthur has won several awards for her time, including recently a 2017 Wildlife Photographer of the Year in the People's Choice category. And this year you were highly commended for your image, The Wall of Shame, um, which was taken in Texas, which is actually, um, hello, Joanne MacArthur, thank you so much for coming on to to the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, And actually, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the the wall of shame image, if, if you wouldn't mind, which was highly commended this year um, in, in the incredibly prestigious um, award ceremony that took place this week. Is that right? Yeah, two nights ago. Two nights ago. Yeah. Wow. How, so, are you, how are you feeling after that? Um, tired. Yeah. Uh, everything's been really great. And I guess that situates us here as well in London. That's why I'm here in part uh, uh, for that and working on a project here at the Royal Geographical Society with my co-editor. Um, But to that award, um, so that's an image of bloody handprints on a wall at um, a rattlesnake massacre uh, called the Sweetwater Rattlesnake Roundup in Texas. And uh, yeah, people are just astonished that this happens, like the the things that we conjure, um, the ideas that we have to, mm, yeah, maim, injure, dominate. And, uh, and that's what this picture is. So what you can do with the rattlesnake roundup is pay a couple extra bucks to skin a snake yourself. And so once your hands are bloodied, you can put your handprints on this wall. And uh, what is striking about that image is that a lot of those handprints are children's handprints. And they sign their name next to it, little smiley face. Um, and I'm very, very happy that an award of this size um, and also dedicated mostly to you know beautiful typically beautiful images of wildlife they now have this photojournalism category where they are showing the reality of our relationship our current relationship with the natural world which is one of domination and devastation and George Monbiot uh, describes this this time right in history right now not as the sixth extinction but as the first extermination wow so accurate that's powerful um yeah, I've not heard him say that. That's, that's a powerful, powerful notion, isn't it? I think what struck me about about the the photos you took in Texas during the, this, the rattlesnake roundup, I think was just 
the normality of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I, I guess this is something you experience a lot in your work is just the fact that these horrible acts of cruelty are normalized so much. And I think like living in London and the UK, like obviously animal abuse is, is normalized, but it's it seems different in, in terms of that, that, that rattlesnake roundup, the sheer violence of getting children to skin snakes and abusing them and then being proud of that is, uh, is, is startling. I love that you mentioned this because... Um the normalization, yes, but it's not often you get to actually document and witness the normalization. Uh, you know, animal use is just inherently around us in our world, and yet here I was, uh, surrounded by children who were repulsed by what they were seeing, by the violence, uh, squeamish. You know, it is. It's, it's murder, and it's and it's blood, and it's gore. It's dripping everywhere. Like it's really visceral. And so here were children um, repulsed to do it, and yet there were the parents you know, pushing them forward and a little pat on the back and people cheering, like, go ahead, you know, kids as young as four years old, go ahead, you can do it. And then having them skin the animal and feeling proud and and being applauded for this. And so we know that children, um, of course, are (laughs) complex, but they they have this innate uh, compassion that they grow out of or is nurtured out of them. What's the opposite of nurtured? That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> it's like pull, pulled out of them. It's conditioned out of them. Conditioned. Potentially. That actually, you saying that reminds me, there was an image taken maybe a couple of years ago in, in, in England, and it was of a young boy, maybe 10 years old, and he was crying next to um, the sheep. Um, and his mum had posted it online uh, on her Instagram saying it was a big proud moment for him because he'd raised the sheep himself and now was the day that the sheep was going to be killed. And he was crying because he was so upset that he was going to lose his friend. And the caption was basically saying, you know, he, this is the moment where he accepts the system and he accepts this is the reality of the world. And I guess it's a similar thing of just children are, are, and they're not complicit, are they? You know, they're, they're forced into these environments and then often they, they exhibit emotions and signs that they, they don't enjoy what's happening. And then we force them to, to accept it over time. Yeah. I know there's so many children who also uh, like this idea of vegetarianism or not eating animals and yet they're not able to, um, you know, to enact that and to, to live that way because they are children and mm. they're not making the rules. Yeah. And, and if I'm right, you said that um, um, during the rattlesnake roundup, someone actually fainted was when the killing was taking place. Yeah. A young woman fainted. And uh, of course, everyone was gentle with her and picked her up and, you know, uh, but people were laughing as well. And they're like, oh, poor thing, you know, she, poor thing. She can't handle the violence. And yeah, shock horror, right? Someone can't handle the yeah. violence. It's, um, yeah, it's a scary, scary thing. I mean, uh, I remember I was in Texas last year, and it's not to not to pick on Texas has been anywhere <laughs> any worse than anywhere else. Yes, you know? correct. But there is, uh, and we went to, did a rodeo protest, and and I was I was kind of shocked by just the um, the sheer enjoyment that people get from these these actions, which I think. Um, you know, I think it's there. Obviously, we use animals in so many different ways, but I think it's sometimes when we do it for sport that I find the most disturbing because it seems so archaic. I mean, it's all archaic, of course, but you can, to a certain degree, you can rationalize. Oh, we need to eat. We need to blah blah. blah. But with sport, there's no. It's just completely. Oh, I enjoy this. There's no other facade in place about it, except maybe culture and tradition. Yes. Yeah. Ones, looking. At, yeah, looking at bullfighting, and uh, Keith and I are editing images for our next book right now, and. Um, we don't even know where this picture was taken, but it's on a man on horseback with a duck dangling from a, a rope between buildings. And they're going with a, a knife and they stride across this plaza and they cut the head off the, the duck. Like, what the hell? Like, what, what are we even looking at? We feel honestly, Keith and I feel like I keep looking over there because he's, 
couple of rooms down, but yeah, we feel like crazy people. And I guess, I mean, a lot of us activists and uh, compassionate people feel crazy. It's a totally crazy world that we're uh, existing in. And we look at others in quotes, uh, you know, from a completely different lens. We see others, we see non-human animals. Uh, we, we see the use everywhere and we go to the brutality. We bear witness. We take part in Extinction Rebellion. We make books. We, you know, do what we can. And we feel like islands sometimes, don't we? <laughs> I mean, I think anyone listening, I think we've all resonated with that thought before of just feeling like we were born into this weird planet where everything seems the wrong way around, you know, where we're fighting for something that is so obviously wrong that it seems insane that we actually have to exert any amount of energy to convince people to stop doing this. It's it's alarming. Well, what inspired you to get into your field of work and into investigative photojournalism? Well, it was the photography that came first. Uh, it's a fantastic tool. Um, as I often say, it's an all, for me anyway, it's an all-access pass into the lives of other people and places. And, uh, and because I'm friendly, uh, I'm often welcome places. And so I'm just really curious about the world. I started with street photography and humanitarian work, and, and it was... I, I want people to see the world the way I see it. And so it's a really exciting, creative challenge to capture something and have it say what I want it to say. And uh, thankfully, I mean, often it's uh, stories of joy and rede redemption and the human spirit. But with the investigative work, uh, it's certainly not. It's, uh, you know, documenting what is and what should never again be. Uh, but it was it, it was maybe 20 years ago when I realized I could combine my passions, which was my passion for, uh, or my, rather my concern for animals with uh, taking pictures. And uh, this whole category of animals that I photograph, these invisible animals, the ghosts in our machine, um, they're just so underrepresented in our lives and in the media. And so I knew I had lifelong work ahead of me, unfortunately, exposing um, how we use and abuse these animals. Use and abuse. I always say that, use and abuse, but like, same thing, really. Yeah. Yeah, I, I say use and abuse as well. I think it is, an, it is a powerful parallel to draw the fact that you know they are the same in in and of, in and of themselves, I suppose. And I guess when you when you started photographing, you know, um, animal rights and, and, and situations of animal suffering, did you expect to uncover, I guess, as much as you did? And what I mean by that is. There's a lot of things that even as in as vegan as animal rights activists, we don't know happens. It's like what we just said about the, with the duck. Did you have you were you shocked at just the sheer level of exploitation that's permeated once you started looking into the, the different events and different situations? Yeah, and it doesn't end. I'm waiting for the you know to cross the end line, <laughs> and then yeah, I've made it. I've seen everything now. No more shocks. I mean, just to be awful, uh, but yeah. no. I mean, you know, I, I remember finding out that we would eat. Uh, octopus live you know like put them in your mouth live and wriggling things like that and cooking fish and serving them while their hearts are still beating and yeah we just go to incredible lengths um and bear bile farming when i found out about about that uh, tapping their gallbladders for bile which is used in traditional chinese medicines i was like okay well in the beginning i would voraciously research all these things that we do and then go to wherever these things were happening and fight my way in, sneak in, uh, work with organizations and, and get access and get pictures. But 
yeah. Uh, I wish I had been a better photographer back then because the images would have been more effective. But that's how it that's how it goes. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah exactly. You always live and learn, right? Yeah, and also I would uh, race around taking pictures of everything and not spend the time getting them out into the world. So too often images were ending up on a hard drive. And so the way I work now is quite different. I shoot a lot less, but I spend a lot more time getting them out into the world and creating relationships with media and organizations so that the uh, the work I do is for not 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 for not <laughs> right exactly yeah have you found that since you started um i guess media and organizations outside of, of animal rights have they become more receptive to your work and is it something that it's become easier to publish over time yes Good. yeah um i think that's the short answer yeah um i i remember saying, you know, 10 years ago, well, you know, all these doors are closed to me, but also my work wasn't as strong then. I'm a better photographer now, but the world is changing. And um, that door is open just a sliver. And so it uh, is a big responsibility for photographers and animal rights investigators and people who are picking up the camera to do a really good job with the camera. Because if the image is not technically sound, doesn't matter what the subject matter is, the the, the media is going to say, well, you know, it's, it's not good. It's not compelling. So um, that's part of why I mentor a lot of people is um, getting the quality of the work that we're doing uh, up there. Um, it's not enough to see something happening in front of your eyes and take a photo from the typical human vantage point, you know, five, six feet up here from too far of a distance. We have to get down and get close. It's my number one advice for yeah. better pictures. Get down and get close. Yeah. And the more we do that, uh, the more compelling the images will be, the more will get published. And I, I think that's um really interesting actually idea because i suppose with with the proliferation of um iphones and people having access to cameras now i, I think w- what i've seen sometimes is there's like an oversaturation of the same kind of image uh, and it's really important if we want to break through that the oversaturation that as you say up close and personal and making sure that we're shooting animals and shooting these situations in a way that is going to reach people beyond what they're used to seeing i suppose not only that but I think we need to put our phones away a lot more when we are out taking part in things. Our instinct these days is to advertise to the world what we are seeing and doing. And that has its value, but we overdo it. Like you said, we're completely saturated with with material and media. And, you know, we're so often just putting our phones on, you know, live feed and getting really shitty footage and shitty commentary, like just stop all that and bear witness, be part of something. It's really driving me crazy with Extinction Rebellion and Animal Rebellion is that like we're there to take part and to build community and, and so put the phone away. Like, don't worry about what people are seeing on the other end of Facebook. And, uh, or if you're going to take your phone out, like take a second to compose and, 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 uh, you know, create something a little bit more meaningful with a little bit more lasting power. But of course, I probably sound like a snotty photographer. Right no, now, no, right I, I agree with you. I, 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 and I, and I know very little about photography, but I actually, one of the things that, it, I, I agree with you in the sense of I think there needs to be a little bit more thought and because and we want to make content that people see and, and it shocks them or at least it resonates with them it, it gives them a message and you know a picture can speak a thousand words that cliched saying right but it's so true and it so is. if we can actually take time to take really impactful images it doesn't matter if we're vigils you know rebellions wherever it is there's a lot more power to that than, than just live streaming for half an hour, yes. which no one's going to share, no one's going to watch, and then you've wasted an opportunity. It sounds like, no, I'm being a bit cruel, doesn't it? But, <laughs> but I do think there has to be a certain element of like 
thinking about things in, in a way that we, we're not doing so much anymore. We're just exactly just blindly mm-hmm. putting our cameras around. And this thing that we do that we believe is so important, bearing witness uh, through the SAVE movement and like go and bear witness and feel it, reflect on it, maybe take a picture, you know, or find find a picture online that's, you know, been well composed and um, get online and, and say something uh, thoughtful and share a good picture. You know, I think, yeah. Yeah. But this is getting into like a whole our whole relationship with social media. And- I know it gets off tangent, doesn't it? <laughs> One thing I was going to ask actually, and, and it, I think it, it somewhat is a nice little um, way out of that one. But it, <laughs> it is, is um, I think often people when I, I find for me when I'm bearing witness. Uh, sometimes I find the camera can be a safety mm-hmm. zone for me. And if I'm looking at the animals or the situation through the, through the lens, it can somewhat help me detach from what's happening. Do you ever find that with your work that actually allowing you just to, to, to look at the composition of the image and the framing, does that allow you to somewhat detach from the brutality of what you're seeing? Yes, but I, I would like to replace the word detach. Okay, yeah. I'm not sure what word to replace it with. Um, if I can elaborate on that, uh, I go to great distances worldwide to gain access to places to shoot things we need to see. And sometimes, you know, we only have five minutes before we get a red alert and we have to leave. Um, sometimes you have six hours in a farm. Sometimes you have five minutes and you're there to do the best possible job for the animals. Uh, I'm not there to deal with my feelings. Um, I'm, I'm there for them, not for me. And so I have to be professional Again, I could probably substitute that word with something else, but I have to I have to do a good job. Yeah, and so that's the focus. I don't think it's a detachment. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I'm very, very connected when I'm photographing animals, and uh, I try. Uh, it's hard to explain. Um, I try and make myself small. Um, I, you know, animals are very used to us swaggering around and throwing around our loud voices and doing things to them. So when I'm in the presence of animals, I try and just stay very quiet and. and not too much overly be overly like eye contacted with them. I try and follow their lead, even if that's not even possible if they're in trucks or something, but just um, doing my best to not alarm them because we do alarm them. That's like, that's what we do. Um, Yeah. And trying to make them as comfortable as possible with me around so that, so that uh, I'm kind of a bit of a ramble, but no, please. Um, you know, I, uh, we need to show the constructs they are in. We need to show um, uh, the complexity of them, which is really difficult when you're working quickly. So how do you do that? I don't know. Um, stay out of the way while being right in the front of center of things, like right in front of them. Uh, it's I think it's something that takes practice and um I'm going to leave it at that because yeah. you can tell I'm kind of working through this and not finding the exact. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to put into words, of course. Like, and I think, you know, experience, you know, when you've experienced these things, maybe you can't, it's, it's difficult to, to find words to describe that. And I guess, and I felt maybe I should be a little bit bad by saying about the, the camera, because actually the flip side to that would be if you're looking through the lens and you're focusing on what's in front of you, it, it very much could do the opposite of, and, and we won't use the word detach again, because yeah, I don't think that's the right word to use at all, but I guess it could actually put you more into what you're witnessing because you are taking particular focus about what's in front of you. And so actually the honing in on, on a specific point of the whole picture of what you're, what's in front of you I can imagine would do the opposite of, of allowing you to be, you know, in a safe zone. It probably puts you more in head's way of what's actually happening. So no, yeah, I think that's the, yeah, maybe I didn't word that in the way that I felt, I felt bad for wording it in that way afterwards. Oh. Cause I think it was, yeah, I, I, I feel like 
when I'm at vigils and I'm bearing witness and I'm doing that and I'm documenting, it's, it's that part of me that says, I, I feel uncomfortable in this moment. So I, let me take the camera out. Let me focus on that instead. But actually, um, in, in the situation where you're surrounded by that violence, the, getting the camera out probably puts you more inside of that violence. It's a good way of putting it. I think we could probably spend some time working working this out. Sure, we could. <laughs> we could write an essay. Well, so let's talk about the, the Ghost in Our Machine, um, the documentary that I, I, I mentioned at the beginning. And I, I, there's a, a little quote you say in that where you refer to yourself as a war photographer. And I think that's an incredibly powerful concept. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on why you would refer to yourself as a war photographer. In the photography world, I think a lot of war photographers would consider that awful and cheeky of me. Um, and it, it's it's meant to be a little bit, I mean, it's, it's meant to provoke people. Uh, you know, like, what do you mean she's a war photographer? She photographs animals. This is ridiculous. She's sneaking around factory farms. She's not a war photographer. Um, so I, I, I want people to kind of come out of that with more questions than answers. Um, war on animals. Yes, definitely. That's definitely what's happening. Um, the illegal length that I have to go to to do this work is is kind of unusual for people photographing animals. So, yeah, just you know, food for thought there. Yeah, when I when I when I think of that that phrase, it's like war is brutal and it's violent, and and we're we're using that phrase to describe what's happening to animals. And so, I think that it it, it pretty it pretty much very succinctly emphasizes that what's what you're documenting is violent and brutal in the same way that someone in a traditional battlefield would also use those adjectives to describe what they're seeing as well. Well said. Yeah. And I was really, um, I've always been very inspired by war photographers. Um, their drive to uh, expose what needs seeing and understanding. And um, we're here at the RGS because I'm working with Keith Wilson, who's a very well-known and respected photo editor. And uh, he's worked on many books. And so the book that we are co-editing now is, uh, the working title is Animals in the Anthropocene. And it is inspired by a war photographer named James Noctway. And in 99, he produced a huge book called Inferno. And it is an unflinching look at famine, genocide, civil war, uh, all things that we have created. And there's no happy endings at the end of this book. It's you know, like it's probably five or six pounds. Like, look at, look at this. This is what we do. And, uh, I absolutely fell in love with his work and his vision and his idea for this book. It's a historical book. It's not something, you know, you want to pick up on a Sunday morning on your coffee table and flip through for the 50th time. It's a historical document and, uh, it's a conversation. And I thought someday I want to do that for animals. I want to create an unflinching historical document of uh, what what is and um, images that just you know don't have a place on social media or they get blocked you know or the media doesn't want to publish them so that's what this book is about and uh, we have contributors maybe 15 contributors now so it's not my work it's a it's a global uh, yeah uh, global contributions contributions so wow yeah. When will that be released, do you think? A little while away? or? Well, we say a year from now, okay. but things, uh, you know, it depends on the designer's timing and like the printer's timing and stuff. So what we're aiming for a year. Excellent. And that's exciting. And um, there's um, there was a war photographer, I think, in, during the Vietnam War who exposed what happened during um, a massacre called the My Lai Massacre. And that's what really changed people's perceptions on the Vietnam War was these images that had been released. And so, um, yeah, again, war photography in, in, in all its different forms, whether that's traditional war or war on, the, on animals, I think it serves a huge purpose in showing people what's happening and we don't think about and we don't, we don't want to think about. But, but through knowing, we actually have the 
I guess, the incentive to change, but also the, the reason to change, you know, I think that's, it's powerful. But let's, sorry, do you have something to add? Or? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Let's, oh, let's, we'll let's go, go back to ghosts, Go I think. back to ghosts, exactly. Um, and uh, there was a question I was going to ask about that, but I'll hold off just for a second. Sure. I just wanted to know, it kind of like, how it felt to you letting kind of, because obviously what you do, I suppose, is, is, is it's, it's very, um, it's it's not solitary i'm sure you work with a team of people but i guess having like another camera in there that, that puts you almost front and center in that in, in that case how was that, that experience of maybe changing what you were used to in those environments yeah, a lot of investigators stay anonymous and i chose from the beginning not to do that because uh, i knew i would do my best to you know speak for them as well as <laughs> speak for them i mean that's so loaded um but i would do my best to uh you know, use everything that I have to, to speak up for them and not just the images. And I'm kind of a normal looking, you know, middle-aged white woman. And, you know, with a certain, you can have a certain audience from that, you know, yeah. like, they're like, oh, she's so normal. She doesn't look like, you know, a crusty. <laughs> yeah, crusty. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll be a face for the things that I want to talk about as well. And uh, yeah, to your question, um, being filmed, I mean, I'd much rather just be on the other side of the camera. Um, I, yeah, with Ghost, I mean, I, it was fine. It was fine. I mean, I really trust Liz, Liz Marshall's vision and the filmmakers we were working with are very talented people. And Liz and I have a similar ethos about um, our, our ideology around animal and animal treatment. And I knew that she would do a, a fantastic film. Now, what's different about the film now is that while it's still cinematic and beautiful and poignant, it doesn't represent me anymore. So right, yeah, right. I've changed so much. And so when I do Q and A's, which I still do for this film, uh, I often, you know, talk about that a little bit as well and how I've changed and the world has changed even, you know, even in just these few years since it came out. Okay, let's let's let me ask you that that question then. In what ways do you think that you've changed and the world's changed? And how long has it been? Six years? I guess seven years since you filmed, maybe? Or exactly? Yeah, well, the filming was 2011, 2012, was it really and it came out in 13. Yeah, so a lot has changed, and I was um, still like leading with the activism when I would speak with editors and I thought that I was trying not to do that but it's clear that I was right and that closes doors and not opens them and I knew that then as well but um uh, I mean I of course strongly identify as an activist um but that's just you know the media world works differently yeah. and that's an ongoing conversation and I can imagine yeah yeah well, you had your the images um, that you took in Thailand um, of the the, the, the pig um, mm. slaughterhouse or slaughterhouses where they were being clubbed. Um, that was that was brought put in the, the Guardian, and and I guess with when you when you when you take these images to them, and you 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 obviously obviously they're aware that the reason you want this published is to you know challenge that that notion of, of the normalization of animal violence do you ever find that the, the kind of like the, the brutality and, and the graphicness makes it kind of challenging for these editors and these these publications to want to go ahead with or are they kind of like becoming i suppose it's similar to what i asked you before but with the graphicness is it is it becoming more accepted that that's a part of what what you're showing i think it's interesting that you asked about that story with the guardian uh because that took months to publish because there was so much back and forth between the editors and so many images pulled at the last minute and many internal discussions between them all about how the images were so beautiful and so horrible yeah. and um they ended up covering faces they ended up pulling the the most um, violent 
poignant, beautiful images. And they, they went for more subtlety. They certainly got the story across. Um, but then it, it was for me to put out the rest of, of the images. And The Guardian is a special case because they have this series called Animals Farmed, which is just brilliant. And the editor, uh, B.B. Van Der Zee, is just a dream to work with. And I, I love that whole series. And so there is a very specific home for my work there. So I'm kind of lucky right now. Yeah. Yeah, And we continue to work together, but, um, the, the series is doing well. And so I hope it inspires other media to, to do something similar. I mean, they have a big audience for this. So, um, yeah, international media of all kinds should be like, Oh, okay, look, you know, no one wanted to look at this before and it's, it's changing now. So maybe we should do this too. It's bold. I think I was so impressed when they, when they did it. And hopefully I guess, as you say, maybe like the Washington post or other outlets will, will want to do something similar and it would be, it would be good. Um, in the, in the Ghosts in Our Machine, you go, you, so you go a lot to fur farms and you document what's happening in these fur farms. You go to several places, but you also go to sanctuaries as well. And, and, and you go to think it's farm sanctuary in the documentary, um, which is a wonderful place. Um, and I think often people as an activist, and I guess um, we, we always say it's really important to go to sanctuaries because it allows you to somewhat kind of like detach from everything, see what the world we want to create looks like, and then you can feel reinvigorated to go back out. I often find that when, I, when I'm there, I can't fit easy into that mindset because I see it as more of a reminder of, uh, you know, of, of mm-hmm. what's happening. And I, I was interested to know, do you find that going to sanctuaries gives you like a break and, and, and like some headspace or does it do the opposite? And, and I guess for me, by the opposite, I mean, is like when you leave the next time you see animals, you can't, it's almost harder because you're thinking about the individuals in the sanctuaries that you were just at. Well, I'm only going to elaborate what you said. So I, I feel the same way. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and, and you said it very well there. It's a, for me, it, it is a, a lovely pause, but you know, when I'm giving a turkey a belly rub and there's nothing for me sweeter than getting my fingers there in the right spot. And then they start preening themselves because they're happy. So they're, and they like preen your hand as well. Um, so, uh, as, as wonderful as that is for me and the turkey, it's like, uh, yeah, there's just millions, millions, millions more who don't get this right, who have absolutely no autonomy and uh, nothing good ahead of them. So it it definitely invigorates me to continue to work hard. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a pause and a push. Yeah, yeah, push. and that's good. I, that that feels great. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, we I, before we start trying, I, I, we we said that this next question about kind of like how you look after yourself and how you, and how you um, can kind of keep going, I suppose, would in an, would probably become a huge conversation in itself. And so um, you don't have to give like, I imagine there's 101 different things that you, you could say. But out of everyone, I suppose, that I've seen, I've met, that I know, I can't think of anyone who's seen more non-human or even in, in obviously human suffering in these places as well. But I can't imagine anyone who's seen more animal suffering than, than you have in the environments you've been in. And one of the things people say to me is like, oh, how do you, you know, how do you go to these vigils? And I think, well, it, it, it's not really comparable, you know. And I think, well, I think about the things that you do and other investigators do. And so I guess out of maybe curiosity for the listeners, but also for myself, like, how do you go about the day? How do you then go into the world and not carry like, you know, this intense kind of like misanthropic feelings? And how do you like see the mm-hmm. world after you've been to all these different places. I have those misanthropic feelings, but yeah. they uh, nothing is one-sided for me. I have those feelings, but I also love people. Uh, I, I don't like us as a mass and what we what we do in mob mentalities and our blindness and our ignorance, our willful ignorance. And I mean, 
we're so problematic, but I really love people. So there's, it's, everything is kind of two-sided for me. Um, as with coping, I mean, it is really a huge conversation. Everyone asks me about it. And sometimes I think that, oh, and I think I know that like my answer would be different from day to day, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, it's also, uh, the answer is, you know, it was a journey when I started and I was, um, newly exposed to all these things. I was more raw than I am now. And, uh, I did suffer from PTSD. I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD and I had therapy for that. And I found that I was waking up in the morning and the first thought in my mind would be a pig in a gestation crate. And I was like, Oh, okay, this is, this is not normal. This needs actual treatment. Um, but I had, I had tools along the way. And there's a book I always recommend called aftershock by Patrice Jones. It's like the Bible for animal activists, uh, in terms of, um, tips for self-care so I mean I have I have answers like that but um and then there are some answers that I want to be careful about because they don't they apply to me they don't apply for other people and then I'm like you know being a therapist like (laughs) giving bad advice as though like from a position of a therapist and uh, you know for example I could say well it's not about me it's about them which so so I'd rather concentrate on them instead of me and like put my feelings elsewhere um but that's not necessarily good advice no, no. And, um, but I think where I've landed after all these years, not, I think I know where I've landed after all these years is that I just put one foot in front of the other every day and I do my best. Yeah. And there are all sorts of feelings around that. And, and, uh, hope, you know, you can feel hopeless all the time. There are plenty of reasons to feel hopeless, frankly, but I don't concentrate on that. And I had to train myself to, to be that way. Um, if you practice being hopeful every day, then it, you don't have to practice anymore. Then it's kind of, it's like your outlook. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where I'm at. I'm a fundamentally happy person. Uh, I'm so aware of the problems in the world, but I don't live there. I don't live there in my heart. I don't live there intellectually. Um, I stay aware and then I'm like, well, what can I do? And for me, um, like action is catharsis. Yeah. Yeah. And so it leads to workaholism sometimes, but (laughs) people are like, you need a balanced life. But like, I love my, I love my imbalanced life of like a huge focus on the things I'm passionate about. I'm so lucky to, to be able to do this every day. And I don't want to squander a single minute though. I do. We all do sometimes. Right. Yeah. We do. Yeah. I think that was a great response. Um, really. Yeah. I think it's it's something that I, a challenge challenging for a lot of activists. I think is how to deal with that imbalance. And I think there is this notion of like I, actually that's a really great point what you said at the end. With there is this notion of like oh well there's like an imbalance. They say well if it's your passion, hmm. then actually that's the thing you should be prioritizing. And I think sometimes with activism and and, and anyone who takes part in, it, in any way that they do, there's this idea that, that 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 shouldn't be necessarily their main focus. And for some people, of course, maybe not. But I think we're in a situation where and like myself because I do full-time um education and, and different vegan advocacy work and so i'm incredibly grateful for that because that, that is the passion so it's not about an imbalance but you know the imbalance would be if we weren't if we weren't doing this a lot that you know most of the time and we're, so i know i think that's a great point to make we might we might get some pushback on this we'll see <laughs> we'll see yeah we'll see what we'll see what people say um so and actually and another thing that i think was really important that you mentioned right at the beginning is we shouldn't see humans as being, this sounds almost counterintuitive, but we shouldn't see humans as being the problem, right? Like not as individuals, as a species, we cause these problems, but on like, like kind of like a myopic individual level, we are, I, I hope, I think good, you know, and I, and I see so much good in people, even though who do, those who do bad. And I struggled a lot with misanthropy at the beginning, I think, where I was like, I really 
felt alien in this world but actually now I don't I don't feel that as much and I think it's really helped to to try and understand why these systems operate rather than just simplifying it by saying we're well, humans are bad now there's as we said before cultures and traditions and all these different um things that that take place that kind of unconscious or behind the scenes that we don't think about that drive us to do these things and I think that that's I think if we struggle as activists and we struggle to cope and it's because we, we're, we're placing too much blame potentially maybe not blame we're placing too much I guess anger maybe a frustration in the wrong places that's I don't know maybe that helped me a little bit with that misanthropy at the beginning and yeah. also you found you found your way of um, of dealing with the problems like you have particular skills that you are employing in the world and it's really great when we can uh, really think about what those are whether you're a neuroscientist or a lawyer or you know an entrepreneur um, figure out what you're really good at and combine that with your with your passion and I think there's going to be more longevity in that and less frustration yeah. and more good feels, more, good more, more, more feelings of progress when True. we're doing that. True. And I think if we start to see others around us as the solution to the problem, as well as the causation of the problem, yeah, they're nice. also the solution. I think nice. that's good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one thing about the culture and tradition thing is obviously you've been all around the world and you've seen so much uh, of how culture and tradition dictates what people do. And so this is potentially a challenging question, but do you think that, because I can think about getting a vegan England. Like in my head, I can see that happening, a vegan UK. Do you think that it's possible for the message of veganism to resonate in all these different cultures that exist around the world? Or, and by the ones where it can be resonated currently, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I think yes with time. Absolutely yes with time. But it's it's actually not really my focus. You know, I, you know, I focus on, um, okay, well, what can I contribute here? I can contribute strong imagery and and these things that I do, uh, when I step back like that and look at big picture, my mind starts to explode a little bit. Like, yeah, maybe I should be more goal oriented in that way. Okay. If I want a vegan Canada, what 10 things do I need to do in the photo world to, you know, <laughs> the problem I guess is you set yourself up for an, a failure if you don't meet those goals and you can feel like you've wasted time. <laughs> and it is a tricky one. I struggle sometimes to think big picture in that way. It scares me when I do. And yet yeah, everything sure. changes and every system topples. And yeah. uh, I mean, uh, evolution is a fact. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this mm, unsustainable way that we interact with the earth is, yeah, needs to end. We just are so comfortable in uh, our current um, uh, use use of animals yeah. uh, people don't want to give that up you know people think it's a deprivation they're like oh god but i get to eat meat every day i get to wear fur trim and like you know like why would i give that up it's so amazing but it's not a giving up it's a giving it's a it's not a deprivation it's a it's a joy to make those changes and uh you know do do better for others yeah we just people just need to learn that they say that the only thing you give up by going vegan is, is animal cruelty. And it, Excellent. You know, it's nice, isn't it? I thought, oh, damn, that's good. Because that's the thing, you don't give anything up, but you gain so much, you know, just, even if it's just that sense of living by what you preach, you know, because none of us, well, most of us don't preach that we want to see animals suffering, you know, but that's mm-hmm. what we partake in. So you don't give anything up. You're just, you're, you're gaining so much. And I think that's, an, I think that's a message that needs to, yeah, people need to hear as well. Um, and so we've been talking for maybe about 50 minutes or so coming to that point. And so I do really want to talk about We Animals Media at the end. You, oh, good. I think you alluded to this kind of collaborative work that you're doing in your next, uh, in the next book that's coming out. Um, and is that kind of like 
maybe talk about about we animals and and how that that kind of progressed into we animals media and what that means now yeah uh we animals was my project for a long time it was me and a camera out in the world but um you know, it's always important for us to think, well, how can I do better? You know, every day, how can, okay, I'm doing this thing. How can I do it better the next day? And for me, uh, my dream was to make We Animals into an organization that had lots of contributors. So lots of writers, filmmakers, photographers out there in the world uh, doing this kind of specialization. Again, not wildlife, not pets, but like this kind of investigative work and stories of progress and change as well. And, um, because our work is is uh, supported by all sorts of donors worldwide and we get grants and we are supported by the Open Philanthropy Project as well. Um, they gave us a nice grant to build this this machine that 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 we have built now. And so we animals is is no longer just me. It's a team of us making team decisions about the stories we're going to tell. Uh, we have seven full-time part-time staff and and um, about a dozen contributors now that we're starting to work with we're creating uh you know films we have our first feature film coming out about wow. uh, animal rights in palestine wow yeah fantastic. and then we're publishing this book and we're just working with such talented people including um, alex lockwood who uh, made um the filmmaker not the <laughs> they're the two two prominent <laughs> alex lockwoods uh, here <laughs> uh-huh. yeah so it's really exciting it's basically just meant to amplify what I'm doing and what we're doing and amplify the visibility um, of animals and the voices of animals. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Oh, and another thing I, I do have to say is, um, again, how to how to do better. Well, getting my images off of a hard drive and out into the world. So we built the We Animals Archive, which has about 12,000 videos and photos that are free to anyone helping animals. Yeah. Um, uh, I've used many these images well Luna and I have both used many good um it's a wonderful resource so for any kind of like activism groups if you're, or you're making flyers or you need like tablecloths or any go check out We Animals Archive because or if you're sharing images online or whatever it is go on there and, and um have a look through yes and there is some yeah and, and all different it's, it's there's so many different categories there of different things entertainment food clothing testing so much um so this it, it's definitely worth making the most of that and uh, yeah I was going to mention that that's because that, that has been an invaluable tool um, in, in kind of my online advocacy as well as kind of more, you know, offline as well. We're really proud of it. Um, yeah, because again, this is a, it's a different business model. A lot of photographers are like, I'm going to take pictures and then I will sell them. You know, that's yeah. kind of typically how it goes, but this is all for animals. So how can we continue to do the best for animals? And we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of like donors and, and grants and stuff. And so it's great that people believe in us and they know we're sticking around and they're like, okay, well, we'll donate five or $10 a month. And we know that, you know, for example, the world is gaining access to this free archive uh, as a result. Yeah, it's really exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. It is. And I suppose as we, we Animals Media, as, as that team continues to grow, there'll be more. It's just an abundance of, of, of this kind of, um, I suppose, footage now as well as as, as well as imagery, um, which is, 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 is sorely needed in, in, in that kind of quality um, and, and in that way. Um, and so long-term vision for We Animals Media is you've got, got the team you want. Are you looking still to expand? Is, it, there's, is there an endpoint that you can see? or to just more uh, well on a on a personal a, a personal response to that is that uh, part of me is hesitant to keep it growing because yeah. I don't want to be in a position position of director like um, I want to do what I'm best suited to do which is probably storytelling and and capturing images of what's going on in the world uh, right now I'm in a director position and 
uh, learning to be a manager and learning all sorts of things that I really don't want to deal with. (laughs) But uh, we have an insanely talented team. And I think if I dropped dead tomorrow, actually the team would be totally smooth going without me. And that's how I want things to be. And uh, so if that can continue in that direction and so far so good, um, then let's keep growing, right? And have the right people on the bus, so to speak. And um, yeah, so that the thing can continue to be smartly and strategically managed. And um, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> oh, I think that was that was that was most of what I w- had had really penned down to talk about. Um, mm. I did want to mention something uh, yeah. as part of this. You know, the <laughs> uh, as part of the growth and strategy uh, and the number of emails I answer all the time with people saying, "I want to do what you do," or "How do you cope?" or "How do you investigate?" We created a masterclass. Um, mm. So it's eight episodes, a total of two and a half hours. Uh, answering the questions that people ask me all the time. And so we have an episode on coping and uh, an episode on gear. My dog, Banjo, makes several appearances. He's so handsome. Excellent. <laughs> Very important. Yes, absolutely. He, he's like the, the comedic relief. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, just, you know, I want lots of people out there in the world taking stunning images and poignant images. And um, yeah, so I hope people check that out where, where do you say those masterclasses were again weanimalsmedia.org weanimalsmedia.org perfect it's right there. and if people want to financially support they can do so through the the same website yes exactly right and um ghost ghost now machine is that mm-hmm. amazon prime am i right or not just go to the ghost and and yeah. click how to watch the film okay. and you'll have many different uh ways to watch it perfect. and I, I do recommend doing that definitely um and Thank you so much for being on on the podcast. It was so I, nice to speak with you. Yeah, it's long yeah. overdue. Yeah. Um, so it was nice that we could finally make this happen. And you've been super busy in your time here in London. So I'm grateful that you could take some time out of your schedule to come, uh, to come and meet me and for inviting me to the Royal Geographic Society, which is a nice trip in itself. <laughs> We're so posh here. <laughs> yeah, I know. People are going to be watching thinking, wow, my goodness, Ed's <laughs> upgraded from this little studio we used to have. Um, but this is not going to be a register, re- regular feature, but um, it is nice to be here for this little cameo. It is a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Well, um. I leave you to get back to the work that you're doing. I know that you and Keith are doing some challenging but important work right now. So I won't take any more time out of your day. But thank you so much for coming to talk to me. And thank you for everything that you do. Um, I really, really appreciate it. So great to meet you. Keep up the good work. I will try and, my best. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could work together sometime? I'd love that. I'm not sure what form that would take, but no. uh, it would be really cool. I would really love that. That would <laughs> be amazing. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed um, this latest episode and um, you found it insightful. And please do go check out all the links that we just talked about. Uh, it's really wonderful. And do go check out Joanne MacArthur's amazing work. So thank you so much for listening. And um, I'll see you in the next episode.